Hello once again, everybody, and thank you for joining me here on this Monday, February 17th edition of Bang the Book Radio. My name is Adam Burke, your host for the next hour or so. As we go over all kinds of things in the world of sports from a betting focus happening with me here as we fire up this Bang the Book Radio train for another week. Two segments, one guest on today's show. I'm going to start things off with an edition of the Betters Box, my MLB betting podcast here. I'll talk about what I look for from an individual player's standpoint with analysis, regression, stuff like that, things that kind of all come together in the aggregate to come up with my season win total numbers. But it will also have a lot of fantasy baseball relevance for you for those that have some of those drafts coming up here in the not-too-distant future. Then in the second part of today's show, professional handicapper Kyle Hunter from huntersportspicks.com will join me for our Handicapping the Hardwood segment. We got seven games that we're going to talk about here on today's show. Also got some regression candidates in the world of college basketball to share with you on the program. So definitely looking forward to a lot of good insights and analysis here on today's program. Over at bangthebook.com, we got a lot of great insights and analysis as well. My situational betting articles up for the NBA, NHL, and college basketball. Of course, as we know, the NBA doesn't return here until Thursday. But I've got that article up for you already, so you can start going through and circling some of those spots. Uh, My MLB stuff will be coming out here this week. Probably going to start posting the MLB team previews on Wednesday. I'm hoping to have the guide out either Thursday or Friday in its entirety. Uh, Keep in mind that that will include season win total write-ups for all 30 teams, division, pennant, and World Series futures odds, Individual player stuff like MVP, Cy Young, Home Run King, stuff like that. Now, I am doing the guide about a, maybe two or three weeks earlier here, I think, than what I had it out last year. So maybe not all of this stuff will be out, but I'll have everything out there that I possibly can in this year's MLB betting guide. So that'll be starting to unroll over at bangthebook.com on Wednesday. The full PDF guide, probably going to be Thursday or Friday. We should be getting that up on Amazon in the not-too-distant future after I get that PDF posted, but we will have a link to that over at bangthebook.com as well. So very much looking forward to the Major League Baseball season. Spring training games start here on Saturday, so it's definitely time to start thinking about the Major League Baseball betting market, and obviously we've been doing that a lot here already on Bang the Book Radio. As far as the other markets go, we got tennis previews from Big Ten Wado for the events here in Rio, Marseille, and Delray Beach. We'll have a WGC Mexico preview from James Mazzola for this week's PGA Tour event. We'll also talk about that on Tuesday's show with Brian Blessing. We'll have NASCAR previews for this weekend's set of races out there in Las Vegas. Uh, We'll have a UFC Fight Night preview for this week, for this upcoming weekend's card. Uh, We've got new updated NBA power ratings from Noops. We've got a ton of stuff going on over at the website. Please make sure you head on over there and check it all out. Finally, as you know, this and every edition of Bang the Book Radio presented by our friends over at DSI Sportsbook. BTB and the number 200 is that promo code. 100% deposit match bonus for the sportsbook. 100% deposit match bonus for the live casino at BetDSI. It's only a game until you bet it. All right, so with that, let's get down to some Major League Baseball stuff here for this Monday edition of the show. Before I get too far... Had a lot of people reach out over the last few days to get on the mailing list for the notes for the betters box segments. Now, again, like I said, once I get into the season and and really I've already been doing this, but 
there are a lot of metrics. There are a lot of things that I talk about with a lot of numbers. And obviously, a lot of you probably listen in the car or while you're working out or something like that. So I want to make it easy for you and provide these notes for the segments and for the standalone Betters Box podcasts, which will begin here the last week of March uh, with that Thursday edition on opening day. I could have one the Thursday before that, but of course we got March Madness and all that stuff going on. In any event, you can get on the mailing list for the Betters Box notes. It is very simple. You email me, adam at bangthebook.com. And that's adam at bangthebook.com. So you email me. That will get you on the list for the show notes. What I'm probably going to do here, since it is still the offseason, I'm probably going to group Thursday and Monday together. So you'll get an email on Mondays with the notes from the previous two segments. Got about 250 people on that mailing list now. So very happy to have that coming out here for you. So definitely get on the mailing list for the notes. Adam at bangthebook.com. That's the best way to get on the list for the notes and also send me questions. I will be doing a Monday mailbag segment probably here pretty soon, to be totally honest with you, where we can talk major league baseball, college basketball, any other market, but I will do a Monday mailbag every Monday during the shows for the betters box. So again, Adam at bangthebook.com to get on the list for the notes here. So I've been talking a lot about team regression here in the lead up to the season in the lead up to my season win total guide, but we've got to talk about some player regression, individual player regression, because my win total assessments include individual player evaluation, specifically from the key guys. The guys are expected to shoulder a lot of the load for their respective teams. I want to find positive and negative regression candidates. That is part of my season long handicapping process. Obviously part of my game by game handicapping process as well. But the goal here is to use the aggregate of regression plus the other factors that are out there, the strength of the division, the transactions that teams completed over the offseason, the transactions that other teams around them completed during the offseason, and then come to a win total conclusion. So it's a whole long extended process for me where I look at a lot of different factors, a lot of different things. One of the things that I look at is individual player evaluations. And with that, I look for guys that should be better, guys that could be worse, and factor that into the overall picture for these teams. Now, again, like I mentioned, I'm very metrics heavy, very analytics heavy, very saber metrics heavy. So I want to talk about FIP, which is fielding independent pitching. This is a hallmark of my handicapping, a hallmark of my pitcher evaluations here. What FIP means, fielding independent pitching, is that it comes up with a run estimator, basically an ERA estimator, using the things that a pitcher can, quote-unquote, control. Strikeouts, walks, home runs, and hit-by-pitches. So those are the four components of FIP. Again, fielding independent pitching, strikeouts, walks, home runs, and hit-by-pitches. Now, there's an additional layer to this called XFIP. Lowercase x, F-I-P. That's strikeouts, walks, and hit by pitches, but it's home runs regressed to a league average home run to fly ball percentage. Now, remember that last year, we saw a massive spike in home runs. There's been a lot of talk 
about the baseball, about the characteristics of the baseball, and why power spiked as much as it did last season. So something I went and looked up here, I went and looked up home run to fly ball percentages, the percentage of fly balls that become home runs by season dating back to 2002. From 2002 to 2014, the highest home run per fly ball percentage was 11.2%. In 2015, it was 11.4%. In 2016, 12.8%. And we started to see hitters focusing more on launch angle. Teams trying to figure out how to generate more power. And they started telling guys, you know, kind of swing up at the baseball a little bit. Hit the bottom of the ball. Get it in the air. It's going to carry. And there were some guys that had a career renaissance because they changed the launch angles of their swings. So in 2017, it was 13.7% with home runs to fly balls, 12.7% in 2018. And remember, the talk after 2017 was, oh, my God, there are too many home runs. We need to change the baseball. What happened in 2019? A home run per fly ball percentage of 15.3%. That was easily the highest all time. So, again, that was the league average of home run per fly ball percentage, 15.3%. Now, let's think about something here. There are a lot of guys around Major League Baseball that simply are not going to allow 15.3% of their fly balls to be home runs. But XFIP, if you remember, is FIP regressed to a league average home run per fly ball percentage. So you look at a guy like Zach Davies, for example, now with the San Diego Padres traded from the Milwaukee Brewers, Zach Davies had a 355 ERA with a 456 FIP and a 520 XFIP. Now, as a general rule, at least in the past, if you had a guy with a low ERA and a high FIP and a high XFIP, the expectation was for ERA regression. So that would mean, of course, giving up more runs, giving up more runs. Well, that's bad. So you would see a lot of line movements come in against guys with a low ERA, a high FIP and a high X FIP. Now this will probably be the case again this year because it's a very basic tenet of handicapping from a sabermetric standpoint. But why did Zach Davies have a low ERA, a high FIP and a very high X FIP at 520? Well, Remember the four components of FIP, strikeouts, walks, home runs, and hit by pitches. Well, Zach Davies is a pitch-to-contact guy with a low strikeout rate. His walk rate is about league average, but his home run per fly ball percentage last year was 11%. That's well below the league average of 15.3%. So you've got a pitcher with a low strikeout rate, a nothing special walk rate, and a low home run to fly ball percentage. He pitches to a lot of weak contact. He stays off the barrel. He's got very good command. So Zach Davies, with a very good defensive team like the Milwaukee Brewers, able to post a low ERA. But because he didn't grade as well in the strikeout department, one of the four components of fielding independent pitching, he had a 456 FIP. Because his home run to fly ball percentage was over 4% lower than the league average, XFIP accounts for that. 
and factors in the low strikeout rate. So he had a 520x FIP. So on the surface, Zach Davies looks like a big regression candidate. And I think to a degree, he will regress this season. I would expect his ERA to probably be up in the 390 or or 4.00 range with a lesser defensive team in the San Diego Padres. And also just, you know, with a park factor change, an organization change, stuff like that. Now, Miller Park does grade better than Petco Park, but still, Zach Davies is a guy that probably ran a little bit better than he should have last season. Here's another example. Marco Gonzalez of the Seattle Mariners. A 399 ERA, a 415 FIP, and a 511 X FIP. Now, Gonzalez also didn't grade well from a strikeout standpoint. A low strikeout rate, pitches to contact, but this is a guy that will never post a 15% home run per fly ball percentage. Last year, it was 9.3. So you throw XFIP out of the equation for him. Now, some people will say you can't do that. I disagree with that. The people that take a very hard-lined sabermetric stance will say that you have to respect the XFIP here, but I don't think that you do. I look at a guy like Gonzalez with a 399 ERA and a 415 FIP and say, okay, that's probably about where he's going to be for the upcoming season. So when I go through my season win total analysis of the Seattle Mariners, I'm going to look at Marco Gonzalez and say, okay, he's probably a 4.00 ERA pitcher again this season. So he's not going to be any better or any worse. So I factor that into the full team profile, and then I kind of come together with some of my conclusions. Keep in mind that FIP and XFIP will be almost never keen on pitch-to-contact guys because, in theory, they are defense-dependent, and a lot of ERA is dependent on defense and luck. It's dependent on sequencing. If you'll recall when I talked about base runs where – Strikeout, strikeout, single, single, home run, strikeout is three runs. And home run, single, single, strikeout, strikeout, strikeout is one run. Keep in mind what that does to an ERA. You give up the same six outcomes in an inning, but you gave up three runs in one case and one run in another. So ERA is very largely dependent on defense and batted ball luck and sequencing. FIP and XFIP are not. Those are based on things that a pitcher can control. So that's why if you get a low ERA guy with a higher FIP and a higher XFIP, people look for regression. And I think Zach Davies will be something of a regression candidate, but not to the point where he posts a 450 ERA or anything like that. Where this is probably a lot easier to understand is with positive regression candidates. Let's look at a couple of the most obvious ones from last season, beginning with Chris Sale. Chris Sale had a 440 ERA last season, but he had a 339 FIP and a 293 XFIP. If you've got a high ERA with a low FIP and a low XFIP, you got unlucky. For Chris Sale last season, he had a 19.5% home run per fly ball percentage. That was well above the league average. That was more than 4% above the league average for a guy that typically falls right around league average. So Chris Sale got unlucky last year, and that hurt his ERA. He still had the elite strikeout rate and a very good walk rate, gave up some home runs along the way, but still had that 339 FIP. 
if you've got a guy whose ERA was a full run higher than his FIP, he is a very obvious positive regression candidate. Chris Sale, health permitting, will be a lot better this year than he was last year. One that may fly under the radar a little bit more here is Kyle Gibson. Kyle Gibson, formerly of the Twins, now of the Texas Rangers, he had a 484 ERA with a 426 FIP and a 380 XFIP. Now, Kyle Gibson last season had a 20.4% home run per fly ball percentage. He's got a career home run per fly ball percentage of 14.1%. So he is a guy that very much was hurt by the juiced baseball last season. So you get a 484 ERA with a 426 FIP. Now, Gibson does go down to Texas, but they're going to a venue change where it's going to be more of a climate-controlled environment. It should play a little bit closer to neutral than the previous park used to. So I look at a guy like Kyle Gibson, and as I go through my win total handicapping process and say, he's going to be better than he was last season. He's going to improve. So if I get enough individual players that are expected to improve, I'm probably going to start looking at an over for that team. Now, on the flip side, obviously, if I've got several players I think will decrease in production or face negative regression, then I look for reasons to bet the under. Again, keep in mind, ERA is very defense dependent. It is dependent on sequencing. It is dependent on something like left on base percentage, where if you don't get out of innings with two outs and you give up runs, that's going to hurt your ERA. On the flip side, if you get out of innings very well, you strand a lot of runners, that's going to tremendously help your ERA. So ERA is a statistic very subject to variance, whereas FIP and XFIP less so because they're technically things that a pitcher can control, which is why a lot of people do believe FIP and XFIP to be very important statistics here along with things like Sierra, along with things like DRA, deserved run average, stuff like that. I'll talk about those metrics a little bit more as we go throughout the season here. But just for you to start looking at an individual player level, go to fan graphs, okay? Look at pitchers with a high ERA and a lower FIP and a lower XFIP, and then look at the reasons why. Did they allow a lot of home runs? Did they have a low left on base percentage? Did they have a high batting average on balls in play? You know, in the previous examples here, Chris Sale last season with his 440 ERA, he had a 66.7% left on base percentage. A guy with his strikeout rate is not going to repeat a 67% left on base percentage. Another reason why he will be better off this season. Same thing with Kyle Gibson. He had a strikeout per inning last year, but a 67.5% left on base percentage. League average for left on base percentage is in the 73 to 74% range. So that's a very easy metric. You go to fan graphs, you go to the leaders page, you sort by left on base percentage. Keep in mind, league average 73 or 74%. Now, high strikeout guys will generally be better because they're better at stranding runners because they don't worry about balls in play as much. But if you've got a guy that had a good strikeout rate and a low left on base percentage, he is immediately a candidate for positive regression. So there are shortcuts to be had here, and these are things that I do take a look at in my season win total write-ups 
and when I start evaluating these players over the course of the season. Now, this factors into hitters, too. Hitters, generally, you look at BABIP, batting average on balls in play. Now, two things to remember about BABIP, again, batting average on balls in play, home runs do not count because they are not balls in play, and more ground balls go for hits than fly balls. So one of the things that did hurt Kyle Gibson last season is that his batting average on balls in play was 330 because he was an extreme ground ball guy. Fielders didn't get to it. Maybe he allowed a lot of hard, a lot of hard contact on ground balls, stuff like that. But more ground balls go for hits than fly balls. So guys that carry a high ground ball percentage are more likely to have a higher batting average on balls in play. Now, this also can apply to hitters. You look at a couple of guys for the White Sox here, and I talked about this a ton in my White Sox season win total write-up, Yoan Moncada and Tim Anderson. Moncada last season carried a 406 batting average on balls in play. Now, he has very good contact quality metrics. He hits the ball hard. So there is that. You can carry a higher BABIP if you hit the ball hard. There's a very good correlation between exit velocity and hard hit percentage, and batting average on balls in play. I mean, it makes sense. Less reaction time for the fielders, higher quality of contact, you're going to have better outcomes in those scenarios. But almost 41% of the balls in play for Moncada went for hits. I don't care how good your contact quality is, that's very, very high. Tim Anderson, better contact quality last season. His average exit velocity went from 85.6 miles per hour in 2018 to 88.3 in 2019, but that's still roughly around league average. But Tim Anderson carried a 399 batting average on balls in play. It was 289 in 2018. It was 328 in 2017. So the exit velocity went up, but the batting average on balls in play was too high, I think, for a player of his skill set. So Tim Anderson wound up having his best offensive season with a 357 on base percentage because of a BABIP that was almost 400. He walks less than 3% of the time. So Tim Anderson is a clear negative regression candidate for me. Same thing with Moncada, although Moncada is probably going to hit for more power this year that will offset the decrease in BABIP. But as I go through and look at these teams, if I start to see multiple guys that I expect to regress offensively in some of these categories that are open to a lot of variance year over year, then I'm going to start looking towards an under. I guess this is good information from a fantasy perspective. I think it's good information from a season win total and an individual betting perspective as well. And again, over the course of a full season, you're more likely to see regression. The larger the sample size, the more expectation you have of things happening close to the mean or things kind of coming back down to earth a little bit or possibly going up if that's the case. So that's why I think I'm very good at the season win total market because, again, with my regression analysis handicapping, over the course of a season, it's very likely to happen. Trying to pinpoint when it will happen in an individual game, well, that's a little bit more difficult. So I'll try to isolate some more of these individual regression candidates as the season gets closer But for those that subscribe to the notes, again, adam at bangthebook.com, A-D-A-M at bangthebook.com via email, 
I did some videos over on our YouTube page about a year and a half ago or so now using fan graphs to handicap baseball, using baseball savant to handicap baseball, which is where all of the stat cast data is regarding things like exit velocity, hard hit percentage, stuff like that. If you subscribe to the notes, again, email me, adam at bangthebook.com. The links to those videos are in today's betters box notes. So you don't have to go and dig it up on YouTube. The links to the videos are in today's betters box notes for using fan graphs to handicap baseball and using baseball savant to handicap baseball. So those links are available here in the betters box notes page. The baseball savant page has changed its format a little bit, but the value of the content and the analysis and evaluation remains the same there. So again, like I said, I hit on a lot of metrics in these segments. I talk about all of these concepts in my season win total betting guide and also in my daily picks article over at bangthebook.com, which will start here on March 26th with opening day. So hopefully this isn't too hard for you to follow along with. But again, that's why you can subscribe to the notes or maybe listen back through the segments a couple of different times. But again, a quick Cliff Notes version here with pitchers. You want to look for positive or negative regression on a surface level basis. Compare the ERA to the FIP and to the XFIP and look at left on base percentage. And look at left on base percentage relative to strikeout rate. If you have a low strikeout rate, it is harder to strand runners. If you have a high strikeout rate, it should be easier to strand runners. If you've got a high strikeout rate and a poor left on base percentage the previous year, that's a guy in line for positive regression from an ERA standpoint. So if you take anything out of this segment here today, that's what I want you to take out of it. And that's how I use the metrics to handicap baseball, both on a game-by-game level and on a full season level. We've got a handful of injury notes and updates here from spring training to get to. We'll start with Mike Clevenger of my beloved Cleveland Indians. He's got a torn meniscus, just had surgery to repair that on Thursday he, or Friday, whatever day it was. He's likely out until early May at the earliest. Now, this is a notable loss for the Indians, and we'll see how fast he gets back. He got back quicker than expected from that back strain injury last season. So maybe he's just a fast healer, but this is a big loss for an Indians team with a limited margin for error. They are very top heavy with four elite players. Clevenger is one of them. The others are Shane Bieber, Francisco Lindor, and Jose Ramirez. And there are some people that don't like Shane Bieber all that much for this season because of some of his contact quality metrics against last year. I'll talk more about that in my Indian season win total write-up and as we go forward here with these betters box segments. But now you worry for the Indians about additional injuries. Now, if they only miss three or four starts, well, probably four or five starts from Clevenger, it is what it is. If he has some setbacks and this gets extended to eight to 10 starts, like I talked about with James Paxton on last week's show, if you've got cluster injuries or suspensions or something like that, that's when you start to worry. So Clevenger in a vacuum doesn't impact me a whole lot for the Indians, but if Shane Bieber gets hurt, if Carlos Carrasco has any more leukemia setbacks or just doesn't have a lot of strength in spring training, that's when it starts to worry me. So one injury, not that big of a deal. Multiple injuries, that becomes a much bigger deal. 
Cole Hamels won't throw for a few weeks here for the Braves. Like I mentioned last week, the Braves have a ton of pitching depth. They'll be fine. Don't let the name recognition be too much of cause for concern. Now, that being said, I saw that Felix Hernandez could be an option for Hamels' spot in the rotation. That's a big downgrade, in my opinion, to the other depth guys that they have, the other prospects that they have. So that is one that I am worried about a little bit because I think, you know, as as very as good as Mike Clevenger is, over four or five starts, you can potentially replace that. But if you've got a Cole Hamill situation where he may miss 10 to 12 starts, something like that, that's where you start to worry a little bit more. Because again, I mean, keep in mind, you know, with five games, you're talking about a very small percentage of the season. With five starts, you're talking about about 3% of the season. So you start talking about 6% of the season with 10 starts. You start going up from there. So, you know, those are things that can affect the bullpen too. Maybe you got a, a replacement pitcher that doesn't throw the same amount of innings, something like that. Those are things that can start to hurt as you get more of those cluster injuries, but a one-off thing doesn't concern me a whole lot. Eugenio Suarez is progressing nicely for the Reds. Lots of people, myself included, very high on the Reds here. Don't just watch for new injuries, though. Watch for setbacks. Watch for guys coming back from things. Because Suarez last year hit 49 home runs for a team that did not have a whole lot of power. Now he's coming off of shoulder surgery, kind of a freak injury. Shoulder issues can zap power. This is a concern for me for the Reds here. I do like them overall. I love their rotation. I love the additions that they've made. Nick Castellanos will fill some of that power void. But Suarez hit for a lot of power. And he's coming off of major shoulder surgery now to clean up some cartilage. That can take away some power. So that does lower my projection a little bit for the Reds offense, at least at the outset of the season. Mentioned Chris Sale last year. He had some elbow issues, had some command problems. He feels good after having a platelet-rich plasma injection late last season. Watch for setbacks here because the Red Sox traded away David Price. They don't have a whole lot behind Eduardo Rodriguez and Chris Sale. And, of course, they took Eduardo Rodriguez to arbitration. Over $600,000 won that case. Not real great optics here so far for the Red Sox going into the season. But watch for setbacks with guys that are coming off of injuries. Miles Mikolas also had one of those PRP injections last year, but he's already had a setback, had an MRI. MRI came back okay, but the Cardinals are a team that most people don't like anyway. Now you get the Mikolas injury in there. You start to worry about that a little bit. An intercostal muscle strain for Ty Buttry of the Los Angeles Angels. Now remember that these are injuries that are worse for starting pitchers because they may miss three to four weeks of, or two to three weeks of not being able to throw something like that pushes their timelines back because they have to ramp up to 80 pitchers or so for relievers. It's a little bit easier. They're more flexible with their timelines. So for right now, Butchery may miss opening day, but we'll be back shortly after that. But for relievers, those things are a lot easier to deal with. Ryan Barucki of the Toronto Blue Jays shut down again. He had elbow problems last year, had a nice 2018, but couldn't follow it up in 2019 with some elbow injuries. The Blue Jays added to their rotation, but depth is a concern for me. And Barucki being shut down definitely hurts them here early on in the process. Finally, one more, and that's Mitch Hanniger. Mitch Hanniger with another surgical process, uh, another surgical procedure, I should say. He's probably out into June at the earliest now. Probably more like the all-star break would be a reasonable uh, time frame for him. 
I already like the Mariners under. I hate news like this for both the player and also for the odds, which are likely to drop, in particular because Hanniger, one of the biggest names on a bad Mariners team. But uh, that's one that obviously does hurt them quite a bit. I already like their under anyway. But again, we're going to see a lot of these injury situations popping up as we go throughout spring training. So follow along with those every Monday and Thursday here on the betters box on keep in mind here, once we get into the month of March, maybe shelving the betters box a little bit to accommodate for just doing shows on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. First full week of March will be a regular set of shows. After that with conference tournaments with March madness, the big first four days of the tournament won't be doing the full Monday through Friday shows just Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, those two weeks in the middle of March, but I will be doing the betters box as much as I possibly can get on the list for notes, Adam at bangthebook.com. We will have you fully prepared for the upcoming 2020 major league baseball season. We got one guest and one more segment here for this February 17th edition of bang the book radio. That is with professional handicapper, Kyle Hunter from huntersportspicks.com and also better sportspicks.com. Kyle, how's it going today, man? It's going all right, man. Um, you know, I'll be honest, I'm a little bit less than 100% here, like we talked about recovering from the surgery, and I've also had some sickness issues. So not quite uh, my, myself, but at the same time, I was uh, looking forward to talk some college basketball here with you today. Um, wanted to get on here for a few minutes. Did you realize that we're less than a month away from Selection Sunday? We are less than a month away. It's crazy. I'm a month away from St. Patrick's Day. That's the Tuesday, uh, the first day for the, the four play-in games as well. So we're a month away crazy. from that. It is absolutely crazy to say the least. But on the bright side here, man, I know things have been tough for you in a lot of different ways, but uh, you've been running pretty good with the plays lately. That's got to lift your spirits a little bit. Yeah, that has been really nice. I'll, I'll be honest. That's what I was going to say is uh, if you were saying how the plays are doing, I would say really good. Um 12 and two of my last 14 had won 10 straight um, sides until Minnesota lost yesterday. Minnesota was just an epic choke job there against Iowa at the end of that game. I don't think Minnesota has ever practiced against his own defense uh, based on the way it looked, but, but um, you know, it, obviously it was bound to the streak was bound to end at some point and, and uh, it's been a really good run here of late. I know I've had, uh, quite a few clients get on board, so I, I appreciate that. And like you said, yeah, that's been nice to have because uh been kind of rough going otherwise. So uh, nice to see the plays doing well. So I guess when, when people say break a leg, I guess I guess that's kind of what they mean, right? <laughs> oh, man, yeah, too soon, too <laughs> soon. <laughs> yeah, right. All right, bad jokes aside here, we got a lot of stuff to get to on this segment. And uh, look, you know we love the under-the-radar type stuff. We've got a ton of that here coming your way. On today's segment, lots of low major teams that we're going to talk about, some low major games as well. But you know what? I mean, by this point in time, we pretty much know everything we need to know about a lot of the major conferences. We know that we can't trust anybody in the Big Ten. We know the Big East is really good. We know the Big 12 is really good outside of Oklahoma State and Kansas State. So I think it's a good idea to spend some more time here on these low, under-the-radar types of conferences. And with that in mind, we start with a fade team from the wiggity wiggity whack. Yeah, let's start with Utah Valley, uh, way under the radar. Uh, they've had really several tough losses in a row. They almost beat New Mexico State on the road in their last game. They had a lead there with like three, two or three minutes left. Uh, they've got some tough spots upcoming, in my opinion. This Utah Valley team is not a bad team. They play some pretty good teams here in the next few games. 
And Utah Valley coming off several close losses in a row, I think that they could be a good fade here because it's hard to lose those big games uh, and come up just short multiple games in a row without there being some kind of letdown spot. So I would expect Utah Valley to have a letdown spot here soon. Yeah, I would think so too. And also, you know, when we talk about spots and we talk about situations and talk about teams, the, the major conference teams, the deeper teams, the teams that tend to have a lot of scoring options, it's maybe a little bit easier for them to overcome types of spots like that. But for these teams in the low major conferences where maybe they're very reliant on one kind of player, you know, uh, some guy with a very high usage rate, something like that, those spots are definitely a little bit more difficult for them because, hey, I mean, if your top guy is off a little bit, if he's fatigued from putting so much into some of these recent games, that can make it very, very challenging to say the least. But with that being said, we always like to try to finish out a little bit of a high note here. And you do have a follow team that's on your radar from a little bit of a bigger conference. Yeah, I mean, still a mid-major, but a bigger name conference than where we were at, Missouri State. You know, I like to look for these teams that were ranked highly in the preseason, that have struggled, and then they start to turn it around. And that's exactly what Missouri State is. You know, certainly some people thought Missouri State would win the league this year, or at least finish in the top two or three. They have a good coach. They have some really good transfers from other schools that came to Missouri State that really haven't played quite as good as they thought they would. But I think this Missouri State team is pretty dangerous, and they played well in their last couple games. That win on Sunday at Indiana State was a good win. I think Missouri State's a team that I'd like to look to back here uh, down the stretch, whether it be regular season and even in uh, the postseason. I think this Missouri State team could be pretty tough to beat here the rest of the way. Yeah, and of course, that Missouri Valley Conference Tournament, I mean, this is a league where, you know, everyone kind of wins at home in this league, but you get to Arch Madness there in St. Louis, and things can get a little bit crazy, and, you know, we'll do some of our conference tournament preview shows uh, as much as we can here once we get to the month of March. Those actually start uh, on March 3rd with some of the really small conferences, but, you know, a team like Missouri State that you know, is maybe kind of peaking at the right time. And they do have some tough games coming up here. They're at Bradley on Wednesday. They've got Loyola Chicago at home on Saturday. Uh, They did lose only by four to the Ramblers earlier on this season on the road. Maybe that's a team that winds up with a pretty good price point for us, given that the rest of this conference is so top heavy with Northern Iowa, the clear number one and Loyola Chicago number two. I think I think this is a team I would be interested in. Obviously, it depends on the draw, and we'll see when that comes out, and we can talk about it more then. But I, this is a team that I would hope would get a decent draw because I'd be interested in them, and I think that most people would be pretty quick to overlook them. So definitely one that I'd consider looking into. All right, so we take a look at some regression candidates here. We've got some positive and some negative here today, but I've got one interesting stat here for you, and, and Kyle, as a totals player, I'm, I'm sure you're pretty aware of what – UC Davis is doing here this season 17 and eight to the over seven of their last eight games have gone over the total. They're shooting 50% from three in the last five games. They're now up to 38.6% for the season. That is eighth in the country, but they're terrible on defense. 316th in adjusted defensive efficiency, 326th in effective field goal percentage defense. Their last four games, all of which have gone over the total here, 155, 158. You had a game that was almost 170 points. It was 169. And then their most recent game, 208 points 
in their most recent game, that one flying over the total against Cal State Northridge. But they're only playing their last four games, 69, 68, 67, then 75 possessions. UC Davis a cash cow on the over here of late. Yeah, you know, I, as you were talking, I was sitting here looking at the the graph on Bart Torvik's site of their points for possession and points for possession allowed. It's really something else. Um, their last three games, they've had 1.274 points for possession and then slowed down to 1.254 points for possession against UC Santa Barbara in their last game, 1.461 points for possession against Cal State Northridge. Really to be honest, that's about as good as you'll ever see. You know, one and a half points for possession is about the highest I've ever seen. So um, this UC Davis team, like you said, they're not playing fast. I mean, actually, they prefer to slow the game down, to be honest. Uh, yet their defense is so bad. Their offense is so good. They've had really high scoring games. I will tell you, I have a hard time with with teams like this because, you know, about the time they start missing a few shots and you're taking over 150, you're done. I mean, you lost. At the same time, UC Davis continues to make these shots here. Clearly a very good shooting team. I mean, they shoot really well from the free throw line and the three-point line, which tells me they have some really good shooters. At the same time, you know, these numbers are going to be getting awfully high here as we go down the stretch. So I would say that it could be hard to take overs with UC Davis. If you find a team that you think might be able to uh, – um, play really good defense against them or slow them down enough, maybe say like a UC Riverside there uh, at the end of the year. That might be a good t- a time to take an under. But, you know, it's hard to take an under with a team like this too. So definitely an interesting stat. Well, not a great look for Mark Godfrey with Cal State Northridge giving up 110 <laughs> points in that last game. It's It really has not gone well there uh, with the Matadors for him. But, again, as we kind of keep, keep an eye on a look ahead here at these conference tournaments, We'll talk about this a lot when we get to the Big West Tournament, but the Honda Center in Anaheim, not particularly great for offense. So UC Davis may end up on our fade list here when we get to the conference tournament. Yeah, definitely. I like unders at, at the Honda Center, certainly. And um, the Big West Tournament could be a pretty good one this year. Irvine has been the favorite and the best team, but uh, I don't think they're way better than everybody else this year. So I think that'll be a good tournament. Speaking of UC Riverside, since you mentioned them, I'll go ahead and talk about them here and stay out in this Big West Conference. Since January 1st, which is essentially, you know, pretty much conference play, opponents are shooting 41.5% from three against this UC Riverside team. And as you mentioned, they're a team that plays at a very, very slow pace, 345th in the country, according to Bart Torvik, in adjusted tempo. But their last three losses are by two, by four, and then by two in overtime against a pretty bad Long Beach State team. But teams are just shooting the lights out against them right now, and they don't really seem to have an answer for it. Maybe a positive regression team here going forward as the opposition starts to miss a little more? I like this one. I think this is a good positive regression candidate. Um, UC Riverside could be a good team to back. I also think they could be a good team to play some unders with. You know, this is a Riverside team that – their average possession length, um, you know, what they do with the ball, um, 20 and a half seconds average possession. And in the conference, 20.6 seconds. So um, this is a really slow-paced team, 351st in average possession length. So um, the Highlanders really try to slow the game down. I think you could get some um, value on the under as well. Well, and they're in an interesting spot here this week on Thursday night because Hawaii comes back to the mainland. Now, 
the first time Hawaii came to the mainland to play some Big West games, it was the first time in a while that they had been there. It was almost about a month. This time, it's only two weeks. So not as long of a time for the Rainbow Warriors being out on the island, but still, they take on Riverside here, a game that's going to be slow, going to be played through the mud. Maybe Riverside, probably catching points there Thursday night at home, could end up being a decent look there in that one. How about this stat? Coming from the Southland Conference, Stephen F. Austin, a team that everybody knows from some of their more recent NCAA tournament appearances, since January 1st, they are 351st in the country in turnover percentage on offense. They are first in the country in forcing turnovers on defense. Number one in turnover percentage. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. Yeah, that's uh, it's pretty crazy. I will say the Southland to me is one of the hardest uh, conferences to bet. You know, I almost never bet that conference. There are a lot of teams like Stephen F. Austin that that uh, turn it over a lot on offense, force a lot of turnovers on defense. Really hard to bet totals based on that. So um, I usually don't bet those games. I think Stephen F. Austin has proven that you know they're one of the best teams and a team that would be very dangerous. Um, both they've shown that this year and in past years, but. Um, I don't know what this means betting wise, because, you know, it's just uh, it's an interesting stat where uh, I think that, you know, the conference they play in has something to do with that. But I mean, you know, it maybe it would make you think you'd want to take unders, but you also want it to be a pretty high under because, you know, a lot of the teams in this conference play very quickly. Yeah, I mean, you get a lot of transition both ways here when you're taking the ball away and you're giving the ball away. Stephen F. Austin. 10th and three-point percentage on offense for the year, 315th in three-point percentage defense. They're fourth in free throw rate, which is free throws relative to field goal attempts. They're 347th in free throw rate against. (laughs) So their games are just all over the place. And quite frankly, this was something I noticed about the Southland when I was kind of looking through, getting some early thoughts for their conference tournament that's coming up. There's a lot of fouling in this league too. I don't know if it's just bad gameplay or what, but there's a lot of just ugliness about this conference. And maybe that's going to lead to some overs here in the conference tournament where teams are kind of playing every possession, like it's their last. Yeah, it definitely could. You know, you got a team like Houston Baptist in this league where, you know, the odds makers can't set a number high enough because they just keep going over, you know, 170 something or things like that, because they play so fast, so many fouls, um, so little defense, uh, certainly think that, you know, as most people want to uh, think that all the games will be lower scoring um, in conference tournaments, this could be one of those conference tournaments to where there are still quite a few high scoring games. So contrary to popular belief here, we do talk about some major conference teams and some household names that everybody knows. How about the Michigan State Spartans? They are seven and six straight up since the calendar flipped to 2020. Opponents are only shooting 43.5% from two. That's 15th in the country. And 27.4% from three. That's 17th in the country, at least according to uh, the notes I took last night. How are you a 500 team playing that good of defense like the Spartans are? The Spartans have been turning the ball over quite a bit. Um, They're 12th in the conference in turnover percentage on offense. Uh, They haven't been getting to the line either, which is surprising. Uh, still, even with that, it's surprising with that kind of defense that you haven't won more games than that. I don't know what to think of Michigan State. I mean, I really don't. Uh, it's a team where I don't want to bet their games here 
uh, the rest of the regular season. I know that Izzo is a very good coach, and he usually has his team ready for the NCAA tournament. Um, you know, some would argue that they haven't been as good in recent years as they were, you know, several years ago. Um, last year, they had a good run, obviously, was Winston leading the way. But, you know, it's hard to know what to do with the Big Ten in general. Like you said, I mean, the Big Ten is a very, very good conference. There's a lot of really good teams in this conference, but nobody is clearly better than everybody else. Um, I, I will say, um, I do have to say that Maryland has gotten a couple of really nice road wins, and they're a team that I kind of dogged a little bit here earlier in the season. Um, I, I still don't know that I trust Maryland in the NCAA tournament, but they've certainly had some nice road wins here in the Big Ten, um, including that last game over Michigan State. Uh, Michigan State is better than they've shown here of late, but now the odds makers are not really gotten that low on them. I mean, if you look at their prices over the last few games, it's not like you can really buy them that low. So uh, I'm not sure what to do with Michigan State. Yeah, I, I don't know either. I mean, I, I just have no idea at this point in time what you're supposed to do with this team or most of the teams that are out there in the Big Ten. How about this one? How about this fall from grace for Mike Hopkins' team? They were 12-6 and six at one point. They didn't play the greatest of non-conference schedules. But, I mean, this is a team that beat Baylor, the only team that's beaten Baylor. They played okay against Tennessee in a neutral setting. I believe that was up in Canada. Um, they only lost by seven to Gonzaga at home. But now the bottom has completely fallen out for this Huskies team. Since New Year's Day, they are 2-11 and 11 straight up. Even though opponents are only shooting 42.5% from two and 29.4% from three, that's fifth in two-point percentage defense. 49th and three-point percentage defense, but they're a train wreck on offense. I, uh, to be totally honest with you, I didn't realize they'd been as bad as they had. You know, when you said that stat and I started looking into this team a little bit, I was like, wow. I mean, I, I knew that they had fallen off, but I didn't realize they had been this bad. Uh, I'm pretty surprised. You know, I know they're without Green, a key injury, but, you know, Green is not that good of a player to where they should have lost every game here since then. Um, you know, this Washington team was a team that most people had pretty high hopes for. And like you said, in the non-conference, they played pretty well. Uh, you know, there's there wasn't really anything to to be too scared about. You know, you get that win over Baylor. And I mean, even to start the conference, they won at home 72 to 40 against USC, had that close loss to UCLA. A um, couple close losses there against Cal, Oregon, and then Utah. And I remember that Utah game really well where they lost 67 to 66. Um, very questionable uh, calls at the end of that game. And I, it seems like that kind of broke this team. And sometimes you'll see that in younger teams to where, um, you know, you get a really tough loss and it's hard to bounce back from. This is a really, really young Washington team. And they have played really poorly since that loss at Utah. Um, the thing that stands out to me about this more than anything else, is that Jaden McDaniels, who was very highly touted, um, has not been a very good fit here so far. You know, he has really turned the ball over a lot. His turnover rate is is very high. Um, his shooting percentage, very low. Uh, certainly a guy with a lot of talent who could get a lot better, but it's not been the fit that people had hoped it would be. And the crazy thing is, I'm sitting here looking at the Pac-12, and I'm going, I, I might waste money on this team for the Pac-12 yeah. tournament in, in Las Vegas, because as you mentioned, I mean, they lost it at home to Oregon in overtime. They've got some very close losses. They lost by three at home to Arizona, lost by four at home to Arizona state, the game where they 
actually were able to score a little bit. It was just a game where they didn't play a whole lot of defense. They Their record is not good at all, obviously. I mean, they're 2-11 in conference play, but they've been close. And they've been close against some of the better teams here. You know, they only played Colorado once. That was on the road. Um, you know, so you can't really take too much out of that game. I, I don't know. I mean, just by virtue of playing this zone and by playing at T-Mobile Arena, which is kind of iffy for offense, I, I may end up burning money on this team here in a couple of weeks' time. I don't think I'll argue with you either. I mean, I, I kind of hope this team keeps playing poorly and then we have a chance to buy really low on them. I mean, the Pac-12 is certainly not um, loaded with great teams to where they couldn't make a run. And we've seen this matchup zone, this, uh, the Syracuse matchup zone, do really well in, in conference tournaments and in the NCAA tournament in the past. So um, certainly they have a chance. All right, so we break down some games here, and we'll start very, very low under the radar. This is one I sent over to you. This is kind of a, a split here between games that you sent me and games I sent you. Robert Morris and St. Francis, Pennsylvania. Now, you're not going to hear about a game like this on pretty much any other show that's out there. So, of course, I'm going to do it because I'm just that kind of degenerate. But here in this Northeast Conference, Merrimack is the best team. The problem is Merrimack can't go to the conference tournament because they're in transition first year here in division one. So these are the top two teams here in this conference from a standing standpoint, and they play each other twice here in a short period of time. They play twice in 11 days, possibly with the top seed on the line here. And again, obviously with these low major conference tournaments, a lot of times the top seed is at home throughout the course of the tournament. So these two games between these two teams here, the rest of the way, are huge with Robert Morris and St. Francis PA. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, this is an interesting conference where I'd be interested to talk about the conference tournament as well. Cause like you said, Merrimack's been the best team and that zone that Merrimack plays has really bothered everyone, but you know, they're not going to be um, eligible. Uh, Merrimack's a team where I-, I like to look at unders with them and have low scoring games, but you know, who is the other top team in this conference? I don't think we really know the answer to that yet. You know, what's who's going to be the better team between these two? I, I like Andrew Toole. I think he's a really good coach there for Robert Morris. Um, I would lean toward Robert Morris here, even though their record's not quite as good. They have played a slightly tougher schedule. Um, St. Francis has really not played very many good teams. The thing that St. Francis has going for them is they're a very experienced team. So, um, I don't think I'll bet any money on this game, but it, it'll be interesting to see how this one goes. Well, and again, one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up is that, you know, again, you've got these seating considerations for home court. That's a big thing. Also here in the Northeast Conference, not everybody gets in. Obviously, Merrimack won't be in, which will open up a spot for another bad team to get in the field, but not everybody gets in. So it's not a bad idea here at this time of the year to check the conference tournament formats. We'll do this a lot more when we uh, talk on next Monday's segment. But some of these conference tournaments here where the bottom teams don't get in, you're going to have some teams that are very motivated to try and get that one shot in the conference tournament. This is obviously a battle for the top seed, but there are some out there where not everybody gets in. So that those are things that you want to factor in the equation here late in the regular season. This one's not so thinly veiled. This one's pretty obvious here. Big game on Tuesday night. Dayton on the road at VCU in the rematch. This is one you sent over to me, so I'll let you have the floor first. Well, you know, Dayton, uh, I I feel like we did a good job talking about Dayton last week, and you isolated a great spot there um, when they played UMass. 
UMass, uh, they win 71-63. I don't know right offhand what the line was, but I know they didn't cover that spread. It had to be, you know, 14 or 15 or something like that. So um, a good a good call by you as far as it being a bad spot for Dayton. They win 71-63 after beating Rhode Island at home, um, and now they play VCU on the road. They're the two best teams are the two other best teams in the conference um, other than Dayton, they play them and then they have a sandwich spot there against UMass. Definitely a good spot. And it's one of those where when we talk about those look ahead spots or the diff- difficult spots coming up, it's it's always nice to see those come through uh, like that one did. I think in this spot, you know, um, VCU has been pretty disappointing this year. Um, it's hard to to say too much positive about them compared to expectations, at least. You know, I know they're 17 and 8, but they've been uh, a money burner and this VCU team comes into this one playing some bad basketball. They've lost three of their last four. They were absolutely blown out by Richmond. And I know it would be tempting to say, well, they're looking forward to the the Dayton game, but they can't look past Richmond. So, you know, I think VCU just has some issues. And Dayton, I mean, maybe we've just been trying to assume that Dayton's going to lose a game too many times here. And maybe Dayton's just that good. Um, you know, if this line is four or four and a half um, in favor of Dayton, I'd lean toward Dayton here. Um, I don't. I don't want to take Dayton because it's not, you know, the side that I usually want to take is uh, will be the public side. It'll be laying points on the road. At the same time, I, the, I, I can't take VCU plus that many points. I'd have to have a lot more points than that. Uh, Dayton's been so consistently very good, and I think they had that down game there on Saturday in a tough spot. But uh, I think Dayton's clearly the better team here. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on this game? Yeah, I mean, this is one where you know you would think you've got a doubly pissed off VCU team. You've got the revenge angle off the Dayton loss, and then getting blown out by Richmond. I mean, that's not going to sit well with anybody there. Richmond returned the favor because VCU blew them out in the first game, one by nineteen. While Richmond goes and wins by eighteen, so you should have an upset VCU team here. But you also have a Dayton team that I think just consistently the nature of the program, they they just have a chip on their shoulder at all times. I mean. This is their spotlight game. They they always want to beat VCU. This is their rival. VCU has two rivals. Richmond, probably the primary one, because it's that inner city angle there. So I just think this I just think this Dayton team, I mean, they're gonna be up completely for this game. And if they're up completely, they're the better team. I mean, they've proven that a few times over here where when they wanna play, they blow you out. When they don't want to play, they win and they don't win in super comfortable fashion. They're going to want to blow this team out here. And this is one of those scenarios, too. We talk about the motivation for the rest of the regular season. BCU loses this one, as as we both expect them to. Do they give a shit on Friday at St. Louis? Do they care the following Wednesday at UMass? They play George Washington and Duquesne at home. Maybe they get up for that Davidson game on the road. But I think VCU is a fade the rest of the way. Because if they lose this game, their sole focus is a shot at Dayton in the conference tournament. I don't think they care about the rest of the regular season at all. I agree. I mean, uh, if they win this game, it probably changes things. Right. But if they lose this game, um, you know, I don't I don't see why they would care. And especially in that next game against St. Louis, you know, they'd be a, a short underdog. I think St. Louis would be a good play in that game if, if VCU loses this game, especially if it's a hard-fought game and they come up just short. That could be a really good spot to play St. Louis. All right, so like I again, I go way under the radar here as we transition over to Wednesday. Boston University and Lafayette here as we talk about the Patriot League. 
not a whole lot of talk out there about the Patriot League, but you know what? I'm I'm kind of crazy, so I'm going to talk about it here because I find this fascinating. Lafayette in conference play here in the Patriot League is only an eight and six team. Two of their wins are against Colgate. Colgate has only lost three games here in conference play. They got a flat spot on Sunday against Loyola, Maryland, and lost that one 84 to 80. But Lafayette's got two of the three wins over Colgate, who most people think probably the best team here in this conference. And they only lost by a point at Boston U earlier in the year. Lafayette seems kind of dangerous here, don't they? Yeah, I think Lafayette is a dangerous team. You know, they're they're a team where, um, you know, they're very good offensively. They shoot the ball very well. They don't foul much on defense. They do give up some some easy looks on defense sometimes. But um, this is a Lafayette team where you, you got to hope the jump shots are falling. They do shoot a lot of three-pointers. Um, Boston University has been about average at guarding three-point shots. So I, I think that this this is one of those spots where, you know, I would see um, Lafayette as the team that I would want to back here if I was playing anything in this game. And I, and I will admit that when you sent me over this game, I was surprised to see this game. And I, I like it because it's way under the radar. But uh, Boston University has been up and down, very inconsistent team. Lafayette, to me, the, the better team. And like you said, they lost by a point at Boston in the first game. This is going to be a very tight spread as well. So um, I think Lafayette has been good enough here in their last six or seven games that they would be the side I'd prefer in this game. And to draw a cross-sport analogy here, it's kind of like looking at somebody like Brooks Kepka, where like he just shows up in majors. You know, I mean, like, the, the other tournaments, yeah, that, that's cool. I'm going to go out there and grab a paycheck. But, oh, it's the U.S. Open? Oh, it's a major? Oh, it's a, you know, FedEx Cup playoff event? Yeah, I'm going to go win this thing. Lafayette sort of feels like the same thing where they get these spotlight games and they're like, all right, it's time to go. And they get some of these other games like losing at home to Lehigh where they're just kind of like, eh, whatever. It's You really want to try and, and dig into the body of work of some of these teams because you see eight and six in Patriot League play going up against 10 and four in Patriot League play. And Lafayette may very well be a favorite here in this game, maybe by a point or so. They've beaten Colgate twice. Like, they have a ceiling. They have upside. Those are things you want to look at, not just at this point in the regular season, but also once we get to those conference tournaments as well. How about we head on down to the SOCON? Furman and East Tennessee State, one that you mentioned here, and, and you and I love the SOCON on this show. Yeah, SOCON's really good. You know, I don't think people realize how good the SOCON's been here. I like East Tennessee State as a team a lot. I think Steve Forbes is a really good coach. Um, the Buccaneers lost at Furman uh, back on January 4th, 65 to 56. And in that game, East Tennessee State was five for 23 on three pointers and three for nine from the free throw line. Um, uh, also very interesting that Bo Hodges, who's a very good player for them, was two for seven from the free throw line. Uh, you know, he's not a sharpshooter by any means, but he's 66 percent from the line overall. So a very bad shooting night for East Tennessee State in that first game. I like East Tennessee State in this game. And and here's the thing is that they come off a, a win at VMI where they really were not ready to go in that game. They had to come back from from behind. Um, I think they trailed by about 10 points. They trailed by eight with 13 minutes left. Um, Bo Hodges didn't play in that game. Uh, I would want to check on his status. I don't I don't know if he's injured or not. That would be something to follow up on. Um, Hodges is an important part to, the, to this team. I will say that I think East Tennessee State – is a, a team where I'm, I want to bet on this team. 
late in the season. I think Forbes has his team really ready to go. Um, you know, good revenge spot for them. I think Furman is a good team, but East Tennessee State, probably the higher upside team. Uh, Furman's not quite as experienced either. So, you know, as long as East Tennessee State is uh, at least relatively healthy, then I, I would want them going for me here in this spot. Yeah, I, I like this one. I think you're on the right track here with East Tennessee State as well. And I mean, this is a discussion for another day, but I know that East Tennessee State's kind of got some consideration possibly as an at-large team if they don't win the SOCON Conference Tournament. These are the teams I want in the field, man. Like, I know we're going to get 11 Big Ten teams or whatever where, you know what, maybe they're all good, but maybe they're all bad. and Maybe that's why they're not beating each other. You know, maybe they can't beat the upper echelon types of teams they're going to face in the NCAA Tournament. Give me an East Tennessee, man. Give me a Furman. Give me one of those mid-major conferences that, you know, is really good, is very efficient, is very talented, but just doesn't get a chance to play against those top those top tier teams because they don't want to play them. You know, give me those teams in the tournament, man. That's what I want to see. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, this is a, a team to where, you know, I'd like to see what they can do against a, a good team. You know, let's see what they can do against one of those uh, teams where, where um, you know, they don't get to play against them usually. You know, we see um, that, you know, a team like East Tennessee State is is generally going to be playing against other small uh, mid-major teams, teams like that. They're not going to get to play against a middle-of-the-pack, you know, Big Ten team or a middle-of-the-pack Big East team or something like that. Um, I was looking this up as I was talking here, too. Bo Hodges uh, missed last game due to a death in the family. So uh, condolences on that, and, and we'll have to check his status as far as whether he would will be playing in this game. I do think that matters quite a bit. All right, in the interest of time here, I'm going to cut down the, the list of games here a little bit. I don't want to uh, overextend either one of us here too much on this Monday show. So we'll go to the game that you wanted to talk about here for Thursday night because, again, this one's way under the radar. But since you sent it over, you know, everyone's going to accept it a little bit more. Vermont and Stony Brook, the two top teams here in the America East Conference, they square off here on Thursday night. Yeah, we, we have to talk about this game because Vermont lost to Stony Brook and what was that, the first game of the conference? I, I think it, that was the first game they played in, in league play. Uh, Vermont has won every game since then. Stony Brook, you know, they look like, okay, maybe they could compete with them. Then they've, they've lost some really bad losses here. They lost home to Binghamton. Uh, pretty inexcusable. They lost by 17 at New Hampshire. Um, it's, it's really hard to, to know what to make of this Stony Brook team. You know Vermont's going to give them their uh, their best effort here. You know Vermont's not going to overlook this game. I wonder what this line will be. Um, Ken Palm has this one at four. I assume this this line will be bigger than four. If this if this line is Vermont minus four, I'll bet Vermont in this game. Um, I do want to bet uh, Vermont here. Vermont hasn't been quite as dominant as what some people expected them to be, but I think Vermont is just a much more uh, balanced team well-rounded team stony brook not the veteran team either uh, uh vermont has the leader and uh anthony lamb who is you know just a far better player than anybody else in this league i think vermont comes in here wins and likely covers i think this is a really good spot for them vermont has um yeah played a lot of close games on the road they won by one at hartford they had a close game at maine um, but they've played better here in their last couple games, and they've, they've had several blowouts here in their last five or six games. I think they're rounding into form. 
I can't say the same thing about Stony Brook. And I think this is a really good road revenge spot. I like this one. I like the road revenge angle here late in the season, in particular with really good teams that kind of have a been there, done that element to them where Vermont, they're always in the running for this conference tournament. They almost always get the auto bid here. They know what's at stake here in the month of March. And when they go on the road in that short favorite role where they just are the better team, I do like to take some of those spots here uh, to be sure. So we covered a lot of ground, covered a lot of good games here on this edition of Handicapping the Hardwood with Kyle Hunter of huntersportspicks.com and also bettersportspicks.com. What's up at the two sites right now, man? First of all, check out uh, huntersportspicks.com. I'm lowering the all-hoop season pass. I know there's been a lot of people interested in that one. That gets you every college basketball play through the end of the year. It also gets you every NBA play through the end of the year. So you'll have plenty of action here for several months with that pass. I'm going to lower that price again today. So be on the lookout for that over at huntersportspicks.com. Also, bettersportspicks.com. Uh, giving a lot of free information over there, doing some contests, um, uh, giving away free members content over there. So go sign up there for the free members area if you haven't already. And if you go sign up for that free members area, then you can shoot me a message, uh, Kyle at bettersportspicks.com, or you can send me a message also um, on Twitter at Kyle Hunter Picks. After you sign up for, to be a free member there, I'll give you one uh, premium play for free. Well, there you go. Definitely a great offer there over at bettersportspicks.com and a good run right now at huntersportspicks.com. And Kyle, we definitely hope that that continues and hope that you continue uh, to progress there in your recovery. Thank you so much for joining me, man. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you again next week. Appreciate it, man. Thanks. There you go. There's Kyle Hunter, professional handicapper over at huntersportspicks.com and bettersportspicks.com at Kyle Hunter Picks on Twitter. Coming up on our Tuesday edition of the show, we'll chat for the full broadcast with Brian Blessing, the host of Sportsbook Radio and Vegas Hockey Hotline. We'll talk NHL. We'll talk golf with two events this week, the WGC Mexico, one of them. And then we'll also take a look at NASCAR this weekend at Las Vegas. That'll do it for me. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I will talk to you again tomorrow.